This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. And in this episode, we go to the Churchill War Rooms. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we'd like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London visited. And now to this week's podcast. The Churchill War Rooms is a museum in London and one of five branches of the Imperial War Museum. The museum comprises of the Cabinet War Rooms, a historic underground complex that housed the British Government Command Centre during the Second World War, and the Churchill Museum, a biographical museum exploring the life of British statesman Winston Churchill. Construction of the Cabinet War Rooms located beneath the Treasury Building in the Whitehall area of Westminster began in 1938. They became fully operational on the 27th of August 1939, a week before Britain declared war on Germany. The War Rooms remained in operation throughout the Second World War before being abandoned in August 1945 after the surrender of Japan. After the war, the historic value of the Cabinet War Rooms was recognised. Their preservation became the responsibility of the Ministry of Works and later the Department for the Environment, during which time very limited numbers of the public were able to visit by appointment. In the early 1980s, the Imperial War Museum was asked to take over the administration of the site and the Cabinet War Rooms were open to the public in April 1984. The museum was reopened in 2005 following a major redevelopment as the Churchill Museum and Cabinet War Rooms, but in 2010, this title was shortened to the Churchill War Rooms. In 1936, the Air Ministry, the British government department responsible for the Royal Air Force, believed that in the event of a war, enemy aerial bombing of London would cause up to 200,000 casualties per week. British government commissioned under Warren Fisher and Sir James Ray in 1939 and 1938, considered that key government offices should be dispersed from central London to the suburbs and non-essential offices in the Midlands or Northwest. Pending this dispersal, in March 1938, Sir Hastings Ismay, then Deputy Secretary of the Committee of Imperial Defence, ordered an Office of Works survey of Whitehall to identify a suitable site for a temporary emergency government centre for use during bombing raids. Although it is commonplace for present-day governments to operate such facilities, 
This was the first time that the British government had required one, and as such, there was no precedent for how or where it should be built, or what it should contain. In May, as German troops were gathering on the border with Czechoslovakia, the office concluded the most suitable site was the basement of the new public offices, a government building located on the corner of Horseguards Road and Great George Street, near Parliament Square. The building now accommodates HM Treasury. Work to convert the basement of the new public offices began, under the supervision of Ismay and Sir Leslie Hollis, in June 1938. The work included installing communications and broadcasting equipment, soundproofing, ventilation and reinforcement. Because the war rooms are below the level of the River Thames, flood doors and pumps were installed to prevent flooding. Meanwhile, by the summer of 1938, the War Office, Admiralty and Air Ministry had developed the concept of a central war room that would facilitate discussion and decision-making between the Chiefs of Staff of the Armed Forces. As ultimate authority lay with the civilian government, the Cabinet, or smaller war cabinet, would require close access to senior military figures. This implied accommodation close to the Armed Forces Central War Room. In May 1939, it was decided that the cabinet would be housed in the Central War Room. In August 1939, with war imminent and protected government facilities in the suburbs not yet ready, the war rooms became operational on the 27th of August 1939 only days before the invasion of Poland on the 1st of September and Britain's declaration of war on Germany on the 3rd of September. Staff accessed the war rooms via the main entrance of the NPO and once inside the building descended down staircase 15, entering near to Churchill's kitchen. During its operational life, two of the cabinet war rooms were of particular importance. Once operational, the facility map room was in constant use and manned around the clock by officers of the Royal Navy, British Army and Royal Air Force. These officers were responsible for producing a daily intelligence summary for the King, Prime Minister and the military chiefs of staff. Another key room was the Cabinet Room, where the Prime Minister and his key advisers would meet with the three chiefs of staff, the heads of the Army, Navy and Air Force. Secrecy was paramount, and two sentries were posted outside the door during meetings, which would sometimes continue into the small hours of the morning. Until the opening of the Battle of France, which began on the 10th of May 1940, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's War Cabinet met at the War Rooms only once, in October 1939. Following Winston Churchill's appointment as Prime Minister, Churchill visited the Cabinet Room in May 1940 and declared, this is the room from which I will direct the war. In total, 115 cabinet meetings were held at the cabinet war rooms, the last on the 28th of March 1945, when the German V-weapon bombing campaign came to an end. On the 22nd of October 1940, during the Blitz bombing campaign against Britain, it was decided to increase protection of the cabinet war rooms, by the installation of a massive layer of concrete known as the slab. Up to 5 feet, 1.5 metres thick, the slab was progressively extended and by spring 1941, the increased protection had enabled the cabinet war rooms to expand to three times their original size. While the use of many of the war rooms' individual rooms changed over the course of the war, 
The facility included dormitories for staff, private bedrooms for military officers and senior ministers, and rooms for typists or telephone switchboard operators. Two other noticeable rooms included the transatlantic telephone room and Churchill's office bedroom. From 1943, a Sig Sally code scrambling encrypted telephone was installed in the basement of Selfridges in Oxford Street, connected with a similar terminal at the Pentagon building. This enabled Churchill to speak securely with American President Roosevelt in Washington, with the first conference taking place on the 15th of July 1943. Later extensions were installed in both 10 Downing Street and the specially constructed transatlantic telephone room within the cabinet war rooms. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Churchill's office bedroom from the 27th of July 1940 included BBC broadcasting equipment. Churchill made four wartime broadcasts from the cabinet war rooms, the first being on the 11th of September 1940. Although the office room was also fitted out as a bedroom, Churchill rarely slept underground, preferring to sleep at 10 Downing Street or the number 10 Annex, a flat in the new public offices directly above the cabinet war rooms. His daughter, Mary Soames, often slept in the bedroom allocated to Mrs Churchill. Below the level of the cabinet war rooms, a further sub-basement nicknamed The Dock was provided for staff members to sleep, so that they didn't have to make their way home through heavy air raids at the end of their shifts. As the name suggests, The Dock was not a comfortable place. The ventilation system rattled throughout the night, mice were common, occupants had to stoop due to low ceilings, and there were no flushing toilets, only chemical ones. Ismay's personal secretary, Betty Green described it as revolting. Rooms 60 right and 60A were used as telephone switchboard and typing pool respectively. During the rudimentary nature of the photocopying equipment available at the time, up to 11 typists were stationed in the typing pool at any one time, typing out copies of meeting minutes by hand. On the 15th of August 1945, Japan surrendered, bringing an end to the war. The following day, the lights in the map room were simply turned off and the staff vacated their offices. Several were cleared and used for other purposes, but the cabinet room, map room, transatlantic telephone room and Churchill's bedroom were preserved for their historic value. Their maintenance became the responsibility of the Ministry of Works. In March 1948, the question of public access to the war rooms was raised in Parliament and the minister responsible. Charles Key MP, considered that it would not be practicable to throw open for inspection by the general public, accommodation which forms part of an office where confidential work is carried on. Even so, a tour was organised for journalists on the 17th of March, with members of the press being welcomed by Lord Ismay and shown around the rooms by their custodian, Mr George Rance. While the rooms were not open to the general public, they could be visited by appointment, with access being restricted to small groups. Even so, by the 1970s, 
with responsibility for the rooms having passed to the Department of the Environment in 1975, tens of thousands of requests to visit the room were being received every year, of which only 5,000 were successful. Meanwhile, the atmospheric conditions of the site, being dry and dusty, were having a detrimental effect on the room's furnishings and historic maps and other documents. The prospect was raised of decanting the contents of the rooms to an established museum, with the National Army Museum and Imperial War Museum being suggested as candidates. In the event, £7,000 was secured to conserve the material in situ. In 1974, the Imperial War Museum was approached by the government and asked to consider taking over the administration of the site. A feasibility study was prepared, but came to nothing, the museum feeling it did not have sufficient resources to commit to the war rooms. In 1981, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, known as an admirer of Winston Churchill, expressed the hope that the rooms would be opened before the next general election. The Imperial War Museum was again approached. Initially, still reluctant, the museum's trustees decided in January 1982 that the museum would take over the site, on the understanding that the government would make the necessary resources available. The initial costs were to be met by the Department for the Environment, and the war rooms intended to be self-supporting thereafter. The rooms were opened to the public by Mrs Thatcher on the 4th of April 1984, in a ceremony attended by the Churchill family members and former cabinet war room staff. At first, the rooms were administered by the museum on behalf of the Department of the Environment. In 1989, responsibility was transferred to the Imperial War Museum. Following a major expansion in 2003, a suite of rooms used as accommodation by Churchill, his wife and close associates, was added to the museum. The restoration of these rooms, which after the war had been stripped of furnishings and used for storage, cost £7.5 million. In June 2012, the museum's entrance was redesigned by Clash Architects, with consulting engineers Price and Mayers. Intended to act as a beacon for the museum, the new external design included a faceted bronze entranceway, and the interior showed the cleaned and restored Portland stone walls of the Treasury Building and Clive Steps. The design was described as appropriately martial and bulldog-like, and as a fusion of architecture and sculpture. In 2005, the war rooms were rebranded as the Churchill Museum and Cabinet War Rooms, with 850 square metres, 9,100 square feet of the site redeveloped as a biographical museum exploring Churchill's life, the development of which cost a further £6 million raised from public funds. The museum makes extensive of audio-visual technology, with the centrepiece being a 15-metre interactive table that enables visitors to access digitised material, particularly from the Churchill Archive Centre. The museum is set out in chronological chunks, beginning with Churchill's appointment as Prime Minister in 1940 and going up to the end of his life in 1965, before starting again with his childhood and returning to May 1940. The Churchill Museum won the 2006 Council of Europe Museum Prize. During 2009 to 2011, the museum received over 300,000 visitors a year. In May 2010, the name of the museum was shortened to the Churchill War Rooms. So, I hope you've enjoyed our look at the Churchill War Rooms, with so much history being just left there 
1945 and thankfully they reopened it, reconstructed it and it was again opened in 1984. And we've got a fantastic video of it on our YouTube channel if you want to see what it looks like. If you'd like to make contact with us or suggest any places that you'd like us to feature in future podcasts, you can let me know through our website, londonvisited.co.uk or through our social media. It's that easy and so many people do. So thank you very much if you're a regular listener and you've contacted us for things that you'd like to hear on this channel. Just do it. Just send us a message. Thanks for listening. Really hope you enjoyed our podcast and we'll see you soon on the next one. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.